Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is The Guardian. It's like they predicted how we'd be on the internet. It's like they predicted FOMO. It felt like they were around kind of last year, which makes me think there is an eternal part of all of us, a part of being human that never changes. We just wear different clothes. Hi, I'm Lucy Clark, and I'm the Features Editor at Guardian Australia. Welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. My guest today is a household name to Guardian readers. It's Bridget Delaney, who has for a long time been a weekly columnist and journalist with The Guardian. Over the last few years, we've all felt that we're living in unpredictable, anxious and chaotic times. And in Bridget's latest book, Reasons Not to Worry, Bridget describes how it's important to have inner tools in order to find consistent meaning in times of continual change. Her solution? The Greek and Roman philosophy of Stoicism. In Reasons Not to Worry, Bridget writes about three Stoic philosophers who lived and wrote about their framework for living 2,000 years ago. And according to Bridget, despite the distance of two millennia, their ideas and wisdom are compelling, important and relevant for us all today. Bridget, let's start with a really simple question. What is Stoicism? I want to nail down what it is and maybe what it isn't as well. Okay, so people think of Stoicism as a descriptor for someone who's repressed or never cries or suppresses their emotions, but Stoicism in the kind of proper noun sense of the word is a ancient Greek and Roman philosophy that started in around 350 BC um, in Athens. And it's a philosophy that is about minimizing suffering and maximizing your enjoyment of life through a whole range of tools, which I can't wait to share with people. And how did you first come across the Stoics and what made you undertake this personal exploration? Well, like a lot of things in my life, good, bad, strange, amazing, it came from my work at The Guardian. And that is each week I've been doing a weekly column called Bridget Delaney's Diary. And sometimes I do a kind of gonzo deep dive into a particular area that I don't know much about. I think it was 2018, one of the editors here, Bonnie Melkin, suggested uh, that I do something called Stoic Week, which was at the University of Sussex, and that I spend a week trying to be a Stoic. And so I did that and I wrote my column and it was very once over lightly. And so 
I did it and then forgot about it, but I, I did um, meet a friend for lunch soon after and I was explaining stoicism to him and it really um, connected with him. And he then went off and sort of started practicing it. And then later on, he and I were having dinner one night talking about it and we were overheard by a publisher who said, oh my God, this is so fascinating. There should be a book in this. So it started off as a bit of a joke and it then became something that literally you know, was saving my life on the reg. So you did uh, Stoic Week for a second time. Uh, So what struck you and stuck with you after that? Well, that was an amazing experience because I knew what to expect. I knew it wouldn't necessarily be easy and there were exercises that I had to do each day. So I gathered a group of people together and we formed a WhatsApp group and they were people who, you know, from all different walks of life. One guy was a trainee priest, there was a law student, there was someone that worked at the Australian there was someone who was at Get Up, and we all did Stoic Week together. And we had this chat where we talked about some of the lessons in Stoicism and how we were applying them to our lives that week. And I found that the conversations on that WhatsApp group got really deep really quickly because people were having these problems that they didn't necessarily feel they could talk about to each other in real life. But when you add Stoicism, it suddenly opens up people to be able to talk about like, yeah, I'm having trouble with my job or I'm having trouble in my relationship or, you know, parenting's difficult. And so stoicism gave us a kind of reason to to talk about the stuff that was troubling us, but without being too um, you know, vulnerable maybe. And would you have regarded yourself as stoic, as a stoic person before you sort of embarked on this discovery tour? <laughs> I'm an unlikely stoic. I've become more stoic since practicing it, but you know, I, I Tell have, me why you were an unlikely well, stoic. like a lot of people, um, I grew up in an era where, you know, your feelings are the main kind of fuel that you run on and they're all validated and, you know, if you have an excess of feelings or if you're, you're com- completely upset or you're feeling, you know, madly in love, that's great and you should feel your feelings. And th- so I was doing that but also having huge highs and lows and had not that much equilibrium um, would never know when I woke up each day, you know, what my own mood would bring and, and where it would lead me. And that would sometimes be great, but often it would be awful. And the Stoics are really counter that, you know, they're like, don't aim for the big highs and you mightn't get the low lows either. Like just try and be in the middle. And I felt like that was really counter to the way that that we operate these days. And what what tool was it that got you from that place of high highs and low lows to be a bit more tranquil or have a bit more equilibrium? It was just recognising the basic principle of homeostasis, which exists in the body, it exists in biology, it exists in mood as well, um, balance. So I found that if I had a high high, it would, you know, there would actually be a crash or a corresponding low in mood later on. Like it, it always equaled out. And the same would be with sleep as well, you have a night where you don't have much sleep and then you sleep for 20 hours. You know, it's, it's everything has this equaliser. And I found that if I was aware of this equaliser when it came to mood and tried not to get too out of balance, I would be rewarded with this almost steady release drug of calm, chill, easygoingness that would take me through the day. Is it a matter of checking yourself? Or like you know, It's totally checking yourself. Yeah. Um and it's totally realising, and look, it's a bit sad, I, I miss the highs, but 
For example, the book's just come out and it's done super well. Like for first week, the print runs sold out, which I've never had before with one of my books. Thank you. But the Stoics say, do not get too excited about that because, you know, your next book or it might come out in a different territory and sell four copies. And if you got really, really excited about selling many copies in one week and then you don't sell as many the following week, you're going to have that real low. Mm. So best be indifferent about the sales. And also the opinions, I guess, as well. I mean, attaching yourself to a positive opinion means you must also attach yourself to a negative opinion, right? Yeah, you definitely. You have to accept both of them. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that was actually something I was practising long before this book. I think it was, could have been Richard Flanagan. I, I heard him speak at the one of the writers' festivals and he talked about not reading reviews. Um and he said the price you pay for not reading a review, so you don't see the, the criticism, is that you should not accept praise then because mm. it completely unbalances your view of your own work, your talents, where you are in the kind of um, in the scene. And the Stoics definitely have a lot of teachings around that, which is um, don't take in kind of needless criticism. It's different if it's an editor or if it's a teacher or if it's someone mm. whose job it is to guide you. If it's just some random person... Just ignore that. But also if some random person praises you, you have to ignore that as well. Like the thing that you should measure the value of your work on is if you did it to the best of your ability. But what about the notion of service? Like your book could help somebody. Uh, Is that not something you could be proud of or become attached to? Or is that something you should aim not to take on board? I, I totally wrote the book with the um, idea of service in my mind. So for me to write a good book, it would be a book that serves, that is written to serve people. However, if people don't find it's of service to them, I can't get upset about that because Mm. I can't control their reactions. I can just control the work that I do and the intention I put into it. Um, if, if people don't like it, then that's, you know, that's mm. not up to me. But I can control, yeah, the intention of the work. Mm-hmm. So we're on the subject of control. It is obviously <laughs> very focal. We have jumped the... straight in the, in, straight <laughs> into the theory. Well, let's, let's go with it because yeah. we're there. So tell us about why control is so central to stoicism. So the reason I was talking about, you know, other people's reactions and how you can't control them is because, Central to Stoicism is this thing called the control test, which is found in an amazing handbook called The Enchiridion by one of the Roman Stoics called Epictetus. And he he wrote, there's only around about three things in life you can control, your character, your actions and reactions, and how you treat others. And everything else is outside your control. So the Stoics believed that once you understood what was within your control, you could maintain your tranquility because you wouldn't worry about things that were outside your control. You just look at, okay, what can I do in this situation? And has that been hard for you personally to, you know, take that on board as a guiding light in your life? It's been super easy because it's a very simple test. It's mm. very elegant. It fits with everything. I don't always like the answer. <laughs> yeah. uh, but sometimes the answer is incredibly liberating. Like, for example, if you have a fight, with a friend or you have an interaction with a friend um, and the friend takes something you say the wrong way or is offended by you and then gets really angry Mm. and won't talk to you. Now, that's upsetting. But if you've acted well in this situation, you've tried to be a good person in that situation and they just blow up, you can't control their reaction. And so rather than stewing on it, which I tend to do when I have disputes with people, Mm. you stew on it for days, 
And come up with the, you know, the best response three days later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's outside your control how someone's going to react. Mm. So it's a wonderful kind of freeing, liberating technique to just get yourself out of knots. And you apply it daily. Like hourly daily, mm. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> you said before, sometimes you don't like the answer. Can you think of a recent example? I mean, look, anytime, I think anytime there's desire involved, stoicism just it just hurts because you know desire is desire you want things whether that's a person a relationship an object a break a holiday anything um and that's outside your control to get mm. I'll give you an example I applied for um a new apartment and I loved it thought it was fantastic so I did this application I did it beautifully I got referees um sent all those statements through and I haven't heard back and then I looked online and it's under offer. And that was really hard. Mm. You know, that was, I'd practically moved in in my mind. But that was always going to be out of my control. I could do the best application I could, but, you know, someone else is making that decision. Mm. And that's when it's hard. Yeah. But stoicism is just, it's a harsh teacher, but it's never wrong. The Buddhists say that suffering is where the wanting is, right? Yeah. The, the not having and wanting um, so it's, it's the same. Essentially, I mean, I wonder if there was a crossing on the Silk Road somewhere yeah. back in <laughs> yeah. the really early days of a Buddhist and a Stoic and there was chat yeah, maybe in a tea house somewhere around these philosophies because there is a lot of common ground. Mm. So you're, you know, when you started exploring Stoicism, it opened a window to ancient times. What parallels did you find between sort of, you know, the very chaotic COVID times that we've been living in? So when I started studying Stoicism, it was 2018 going into 2019, and there were already, like there was already big chaos in the world, you know, much more than I'd ever seen in my kind of 20 years as a journalist. It seemed to be getting more and more heated and more and more crazy. Things just seemed to be escalating. And using Stoicism in that time was was very reassuring because they had also gone through crazy times. If you look at what happened in Rome in the time when Stoicism was very popular, you know, you had you had really unstable and crazy leaders like Nero. You had, um, well, you didn't have medicine, so you had a huge amount of infant mortality. Marcus Aurelius, who was the great Roman Stoic emperor, lost nine of his 14 children. Seneca, another brilliant Stoic, lost his only child. You know, they had to cope with death on a very up close and personal and large scale. You know, there was lots of wars. There was, you know, the usual problems that we have in our own lives today, you know, relationship breakdowns, theft, uh, you know, loss of reputation and position. And they also had, which I found really interesting, they also had a lot of climate anxiety. So really? Yes, yes, it's extraordinary. They did not have the data to back this up, but they had a, an intuition. They were, they were brilliant on nature and the environment and the cosmos. They were so fascinated with the natural world and how we all fit into it. This homeostasis thing that I was referring to earlier, which is like everything being in balance. You mm. know, the, the natural world needs to be in balance with the human world. The water and the land need to be in balance, the stars and the sky. So they were very much enamoured and in awe of, of, of the world that we're now in, but they started to freak out. Well, Seneca started to freak out when Rome built up its navy to the capacity where it started really extending beyond the empire. Mm. And he thought that that overreach would lead to 
a lack of homeostasis, you know, things going out of balance. And he wrote in this great play, Thyestes, about the world being destroyed either by fire or flood. They were convinced it would happen in their lifetime and it would it would happen via one of those kind of natural elements like fire or flood. And um, it didn't come to pass, but we do have those same anxieties mm. now. And I write in the book that we, we now have the data to actually support our fears, whereas the Stoics just had, had a hunch. So, Bridget, at the time, how were philosophers viewed by society? So... Philosophers were embedded in society. You know, they were, Seneca was a political advisor, very famous playwright. Marcus Aurelius was the Roman emperor. Um, Epictetus was a highly respected teacher. And all in, in Rome, all the kind of high-born young men were sent to, to study philosophy and also rhetoric. And Stoicism was, for a period of time, the favoured philosophy. And um, in much the same way that we might have an ethics class now, you know, it was it was considered important to have a framework from which to lead, a framework mm. that was understood by by everyone. And so it was not considered unusual to practice philosophy, to live a philosophical life. It wasn't seen as freaky or odd. Christianity hadn't really, you know, it hadn't really kicked off. And you do see, if you look at you know at it longitudinally. After Marcus Aurelius's reign, Christianity really ramped up, and then Stoicism disappeared, mm. which I think is a great shame. You know, mm. they they didn't believe in heaven or hell. Um, there wasn't a church. There wasn't money that you you didn't give your money to someone to build a building. It was all how you interacted with others and interacted with the world, and the loss of that way of being. Um, I just wonder how you know how different the world would have been had we had a Stoic. <laughs> A Stoic world. So, Bridget, you focus on three particular Stoics in your book. Who are they? So in my book, I the, the main three dudes that I look at are Epictetus Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, the Roman Stoics. A lot of the earlier Greek works been lost or exist only in, in fragments, and it's Epictetus Seneca and Aurelius whose work survives intact today. And why I think these three are really interesting is because they cover off three different bases. Um, Seneca's like the Elon Musk of his time, self-made man, um, incredibly wealthy, power broker, super interesting. Marcus Aurelius, most powerful man in the world, Roman emperor. And Epictetus was born a slave and lamed in one leg. So he was really born at the bottom of the pile. And um, once he was freed, he became a teacher. So the three of them represent kind of different social classes and, and different, I guess, lifestyles, and that's why looking at them together has been a real a real joy. We can't talk about what you called the dudes without also talking about women. They don't get much of a look in, do they? That was, a, a, I guess, a structural problem in Roman society that, that you know, men were very much favoured over women. Different for the Greeks, though. I mean, the Greeks had this ideal of, particularly in Stoicism, that Everyone with reason who has the ability to reason is equal, and that includes slaves and freeborn people, men and women, people of all races. So reason, which is a centre point of Stoicism, was this equaliser that crossed class, gender and race lines, which was extraordinary for Mm. 350 BC to have that sort of thinking. And that vein of equality did thread into the Roman Stoic times with with some like there's Musonius Rufus who said, well, look, women should be taught philosophy if they can reason. You know, there's no reason why women can't embody what they call the virtues, which are 
courage, wisdom, temperance and justice. You know, they have just as much capacity for that as men do. Um, but the patriarchal kind of setup of society at that time, you know, theoretically women could be equal, but um, practically, no, they didn't. They mm. didn't break through. And, you know, we all have an unconscious. We all have dreams. We have desires. We have different brains. Um, we have different past patterns that that influence our current behaviour. So they didn't understand those intricacies, but they did kind of get the broad brushstrokes of, mm. of human behaviour. And they were they were actually optimistic, I think, and I love their optimism. Like um, Marcus Aurelius said, what's, what's good for the bee is good for the hive. You know, they believed that we were meant to be connected and mm. together, which I think is something that has lasted throughout the ages and I, I, I love the fact that they weren't these individualistic kind of people that that we think they are. They they were very community-minded. I mean, the other thing where I think there's not a great fit is around, I guess, intersectionality and, mm. like, you know, structural issues. So you look at um, racism, ableism, sexism, the kind of deep stoicism says that the only thing that really matters is your own character and other people's response to you is not within mm. your control. So... Um, if someone is um, mocking you for being disabled, that's on them. Um, mm. It shows that they have a bad character. And However, hard, hard. It is hard. Mm. And that was very much what Epictetus, who had the use of kind of one leg, um, would say and who, who was enslaved. And that's a much harder argument to make now when we see that there are structural problems that, that keep oppressed people mm. oppressed. Mm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. So we started talking about the big ideas earlier with the control test, but now I want to ask about negative visualization. What is it? So it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty unpleasant. <laughs> it can be an unpleasant exercise, but it, it is core stoic practice. And um, they believed that any of us can die at any time, including very young people, including our children. Which is true. Which is true. Uh, but we don't like, particularly now, we don't like thinking of it. Death is very much hidden. And we like to presume that we're probably going to live forever. But the Stoics believe that if you thought of your own death frequently or the death of your loved ones, you'll cherish your life more, you'll cherish your relationships more, you won't take a single second for granted. So 
um, Epictetus had this like insane line in, in the Enchiridion, which was when you kind of tuck your child into bed at night, just imagine that they're going to die in the night. Mm, um, okay. That could be quite stressful on a daily basis. It could be quite stressful, but he, he said it allows you then to, to recognise that your child is immortal, is amortal, not immortal, mm-hmm. that your child, you know, could die and um, to cherish the time that you have with with that child. And before you learned about negative visualisation, did you ever imagine the death of loved ones? I did. I did imagine it, but I mm. often saw that as an anxious response and I saw it as a negative thing. Right. Whereas the stoic neg- negative visualisation exercise is a positive thing. You know, it's mm. it's meant to benefit you. There's a kind of slight vaccine effect where... You give yourself a touch of, of grief, a touch of sadness. A touch of reality. And a touch of reality. Mm. Yeah, they were all about a big touch of reality, the, the Stoics. Mm. Another big idea. What's a preferred indifferent, Bridget? Okay, this is another big one that I, I, had, a lot of, I had a lot of trouble kind of coming to terms with, but I got there in the end. So if you look at the control test and you work out what you can and can't control, health, money and reputation are essentially outside your control. The Stoics said it's preferable to have them. You know, we all want to have a comfortable house. Um, We all want to drink nice wine, eat nice food, um, be well thought of by our friends and colleagues and society at large. But because those things can be taken from us at any time, we should essentially be indifferent to them because we don't want our tranquility to be destroyed. So if I'm indifferent to the um, reception that my book gets, if it gets a bad reception, then my tranquility will stay intact, which mm-hmm. is very important. If I'm not indifferent to the reception of the book and it doesn't sell well, then I'll be destroyed and I'll, I'll have this thing which the Stoics call suffering twice. The first suffering is the book doesn't sell well. The second suffering is I'm completely bummed out for ages about it, like I'm distraught. You know, I've, like, I've spent years doing this and four people have bought it and three of them were my mother. So <laughs> it's... Um, it's a way, I guess, of protecting your emotional state and being in reality, realising that the good and bad things in life come and go, you know, like the tragedies come, they also go. The wonderful things come, they also go. Life is in a flux. Mm. So you mentioned tranquility, which brings me to maybe my favourite thing in your book, which is about ataraxia. Yes. Uh, tell me about that. I know it's related to happiness, but people get a lot wrong about happiness, don't they? They do. And the last kind of, I guess, decade has seen this explosion in happiness research and governments wanting to promote people being happy. And the Greeks and the Romans had a kind of different take on happiness because they believed that happiness was too tied to that swing state of taking you out of homeostasis. It was too dependent on externals. Whereas ataraxia is something you create in yourself of just being chilled out relaxed, something terrible could happen and that's okay, something great could happen and you'd be okay. It's it's almost being, uh, you know, a little bit non-reactive, but it's not putting your hopes or training your happiness on something outside your control. So, for example, if I really wanted to date a barmer, for example, right. <laughs> and that was a major... You know, there's lots of things wrong with that. But, I mean, if that was a major ambition in my life and I thought I could only be happy if I date Obama, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna get unhappy because it's, <laughs> you know, it might not happen. Um, so might not. It might not. Whereas if my um, ambition is to be a really courageous person 
who tries to be good, you know, to others, that's within my control. And if I achieve that, I'll then feel happy because I've achieved something that I can control. My tranquility hasn't been destroyed. I'm not pinning my hopes on something wild and crazy. I mean, I've written about this before for The Guardian, like ataraxia acts like this slow-release drug. You don't get those big highs. You Mm. don't get the big euphoria, but you get this nice mellow sense that whatever is going to happen to you that day, you can handle it and you're going to go to bed feeling like relatively calm. Mm. So there's a lot of self-containment involved in this philosophy, right? And Mm. that then extends to anger, which you Mm. also address in your book. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so the Stoics really did not like anger. Um, they thought it it didn't just poison your own kind of ataraxia or, or your own internal feelings. It spread out like a kind of poisonous cloud that infected others. So, for example, um, we're colleagues, so if you and I had a disagreement in the newsroom and I yelled at you or I, I did something that was, you know, I went off at you, then you go home and you might talk to your kids in a way that's a bit more short-tempered because I've just put my stress on you. And then they might then go and have an interaction with one of their friends that carries that anger. You know, mm. it's, it never just stops at the source. It always ripples out. And, I mean, the Stokes were incredible at, at recognising human behaviour and how mood can spread. And there's this great book which still holds up today by Seneca called De Ira um, on anger, and it's about how to stop being angry. It's how mm. to how to stop it at the source. Um, Now, I struggled a bit with this because I do think anger, particularly from a female perspective, you know, there's so, you know, so much has been suppressed with with women and anger. Mm. You know, we're told it's unattractive to be angry, but anger actually can show you where you're being, um, you know, where you're being slighted or where there's an abuse going on. Where there's a need for change. Where there's a need for change. So they didn't deny that anger had this kind of cleansing power in it that could teach you things, but it was about expressing the anger. So how can you assert yourself and your principles in a way that might get the message across or make change in a way that doesn't disturb personal tranquility? So they believed in recognising like the feeling of anger and where it comes from, cooling down, but retaining that kind of nugget of gold of I feel angry because I'm not being paid the same as my colleagues. Mm. So you cool the emotion down, but you take the, the the factual bit and then you present, you might be going to your boss and then you then present a case. Mm. But you don't kind of react. You don't react. Mm. Now, there was an exception to this, which I think is really um, kind of cute, which is you do react if you're in a situation where you're, for example, you're teaching, you're dealing with children um, or they're, they're, you know, running in front of a car or they're doing, you know, or you're in a classroom situation. Um and in that case, they said to fake anger, to fake the right. <laughs> cool down, take the thing that you need to tell them and then pretend to be angry because in some situations where there's a disparity in power, the appearance of anger can actually be a learning be a learning thing. Yeah. Um, but they just saw anger as being something that never, never makes a situation better, always makes it worse. Mm-hmm. So what did the Stoics teach you about regulating your reactions and judgments? The Stoics taught me to slow down and be conscious of my reactions. So a lot of reactions are unconscious. You know, we, we have these patterns, we have these ways of behaving, we're not even really aware of often how we're reacting. But the, the philosophy demands that you slow down and kind of 
pause and mm. go, why am I reacting this way? Is this just habitual? Is this useful? Um, and they have this, there's this old Greek Stoic called, I think, Chrysippus, and he talks about emotions being like a cart um, running away and, and there's a dog attached and, you know, and once the, once the emotion starts really taking speed, you're the dog attached to the car on the rope and you just... You're trying to keep up. You're trying to keep up, <laughs> but you, you just can't control it anymore. So it's before that cart gets going, you, you slow it down. Um, now, a, a lot of listeners will probably recognise this from kind of CBT. It's, it's, mm. it's used in therapy and, and stoicism is, the, you know, is a source material for a lot of modern um, psychotherapies. Yeah. So, I think one of the other echoes in um, modern psychology and psychotherapy is also seeing the world as it really is. I mean, they really urged people to see the reality in front of them, didn't they? Yeah, and that was a hard and fascinating thing when I was writing this book. I mean, I started reading the work of this incredible Jesuit priest called Anthony de Mello, who mm. wrote this amazing book about reality and about a lot of the problems we have in life is because we we live in our heads. We live in a dream world. We live in a world of hopes and desires and wants that actually correspond very little with <laughs> what's actually <laughs> going <real> on. <laughs> and so all of us are going around with this kind of almost VR in our heads of, of how things should be. And a lot of the disappointment and heartbreak happens when we realise that our imaginings don't connect with the actual realities. So it's very simple. What the Stoics and DeMello and others say is just be in reality. And I don't have any tattoos and I don't think I'll ever get one, but if I did, it would just say reality, you know, like it is the literal <laughs> reality check because I I often get carried away, you know, and our egos carry us away um, with imagining stuff and mm. thinking my own things or thinking, I mean, one of the fascinating things is thinking you have a, an important relationship or friendship with someone and then discovering that you're their sort of 30th best friend, not their, <laughs> not their second best friend. And that happens a lot. You know, mm. we misjudge all the time and then are, are terribly kind of let down when we discover the truth. So what's the tool that gets you to really look reality in the face? People would just say consciousness, you know, mm. just being present, looking at a situation, realising that, you know, everyone's the main star of their own yeah. show that is their life and you're not the centre of everyone's life. You know, you're yeah. kind of off to the side. So it's about reorganising where you see yourself. Mm. And Our I think perception. It's brilliant. I think if everyone did that, the world would be really different. Would it be less magical? I don't know. Mm. <laughs> so this brings me like very neatly to the next question, which is about hope. I mean, the Stoics really weren't keen on hope, were they? So, you know, we've got reality, we must look it in the face. How does that sit with hope? Ah, oh, well, the Seneca had this brilliant line, which was, um, cease to hope and you'll cease to fear. Oh. So if you hope for something, say I get um, a, a terrible diagnosis and I hope that I'll be cured, it also means that I'm fearful that I won't be cured. Mm. So hope coincides with fear. And that's a very weird thing to hear in this day and age where, you know, Obama, once again, <laughs> ran off the, you know, ran off the fumes of hope, ran off, you know, the whole, the whole notion of hope. And um, hope is counter to reality. You know, reality might be if you are diagnosed with something saying, oh, well, okay, well, you know, am I going to be here in six weeks or what does the data say? And it's like, oh, okay, I have a, you know, I have a 18, 10 chance of, not making it, well, why wouldn't I be one of those eight? 
You know, mm. why wouldn't I be in the majority? Mm. Um, so, so should we relinquish hope? Oh, that's a good question. Should we relinquish hope? If you want to live in reality, yes. If you want to live in the nicer world of dreams, um, hope can get people through. Hope can get people through terrible situations. But I do write in the book about there's been some extraordinary situations in the past, one of which is um, a guy called James Stockdale mm. who was a, a, a um, Vietnam War veteran, highly decorated, uh, and he studied Epictetus at Stanford before he went to the Vietnam War as, as a fighter pilot and was shot down by the Viet Cong. And as he was, as his body was kind of floating from the air, he thought to himself, now I am leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus, which is an incredible wow, thing to yeah. think. And then he he broke his legs quite badly, was then taken into a POW camp where he remained for, I think, seven years, endless torture or lots of torture that probably felt endless. And he was in charge of around 50 POWs. And he said, we are going to run this POW camp like we are Stoics. And it was an extraordinary kind of real life mm. experiment of Stoicism. But at not one point did James Stockdale have hope that he would be rescued. And in fact, he said the people that had hope, they were the ones that did not that last. Really suffered. And you you read it in the work of Viktor Frankl and mm. Primo Levi, who wrote, I mean, brilliant books about the Holocaust, which was the, the people whose hearts were broken and who didn't survive were the ones who thought they'd be home by Christmas. The optimists. Yeah. Mm. It's a very challenging philosophy, isn't it? It's it's challenging, but it's also I think it's good if you're if you decide to be in reality because it's not challenging because reality is in front of you. Mm. You know, it's mm. there. Yeah. So it's it's sometimes far more challenging to live in a dream world. Because hope isn't, um, you know, it's not a material thing. It's it's an emotion. And so what has been the most personally challenging thing for you? You've been on this incredible journey over four or five years. What has What have you come out with that is the biggest change in your life? I guess the biggest change in my life is that I know, I know that the external things won't make me happy. And that's profound, sad amazing. Mm. You know, the thing I, you know, I've, I always thought I was pretty relaxed, but I look back at my life and it was one achievement after another. You know, I really wanted to be a lawyer. So I went to law school mm. six years, wanted to be a reporter, went to the SMH, wanted to do, write a novel, did it, ticked all those things off. And then I, you know, stoicism has kind of made me confront the realisation that whilst it's been great to tick off all these hopes and dreams, none of them have actually provided the deep, true fulfilment of having a kind of good nourishing life that mm. may not include any achievement, you know, may just include just being and being a good person and, and being they, in the world. They haven't, all of those achievements haven't altered your base level of happiness. No, I think you, I think subconsciously I was doing certain things because I thought there would be a payoff after. Mm. And I now realise that the payoff was doing the thing. It wasn't the thing afterwards. It wasn't the outcome. It was the act itself of writing the novel or the act itself of doing the study. Um, and what you think might result from it doesn't necessarily result. Mm. So uh, Stoicism's taught me that the joy is in the doing, not in the receiving. And do you have a daily habit or habits that keep you in touch with the philosophy? 
So they're big into journaling, which I do mm. as, as often as possible. And instead of sort of going home to my journal and saying, Lucy was mean to me today, <laughs> I, you know, I question myself, was I the best person I could be today? You know, I can't control you. I can control how I am with others. And so the Stoics use the journal to, to look at their own behaviour, to say, look, was, was, did, I, did I go off at someone today? Did I, did I kind of go in a sulk and lose half the day because, you know, something didn't go my way or I didn't get what I wanted? Let's record this and look at whether we can do better tomorrow. So, yeah, journaling definitely. So at the start of your book you, you write about how uh, secular society struggles to find consistent meaning in a time of change. Um, and having spent so much time understanding Stoicism, do you also agree with the Stoics' view that philosophy is the highest form of work? It is. I think it's. I think it's the work of being human. You know, it's the work of working out how to deal with each other despite all our flaws. How to deal with ourselves. You know, how to deal with suffering. Mm. Um, how to enjoy life. You know, how to appreciate the beauty that we have all around us. So why don't we seem to value philosophy in modern times? I mean, we don't really have the philosophers in the way that we used to. There's such a hunger for it. Um, I don't even know if you'd call it philosophy, but there's a hunger for community. There's a hunger for meaning. Mm. Um, there's a hunger for, for being told the truth, which is that reality piece we were talking about, like confronting the truth together as a community. Um, and I don't see that there's much provision of that right now, but, God, there needs to be. Mm. So let's pull the camera way, way, way back as far as it goes. What are your overall impressions of the journey through time taken by the human condition? I mean, have we really changed that much in 2,000 years? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, I just was laughing my head off the whole time I was researching the Stoics because <laughs> it's like they predicted how we'd be on the internet. It's like they predicted FOMO. Um and they write in such a kind of blunt and, and often beautiful way. So it's not mm. like reading Chaucer or Shakespeare. They're, they're, they're incredibly accessible. And they felt, it felt like they were around you know, kind of last year, which makes me think there is an eternal part of all of us that, you know, a part of being human that never changes. We just wear different clothes. Bridget Delaney is the author of Reasons Not to Worry, How to Be Stoic in Chaotic Times, published by Alan and Unwin. If you liked this episode with Bridget, I'd recommend a previous conversation I had with the author Catherine Heyman on her absolutely compelling memoir about personal transformation in the wake of assault. You can listen to it in our feed, and we put a link to it in our show notes on our website. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Mel Chun, mixed by Daniel Simo, the series producer is Jane Lee, and Molly Glassie is executive producer. I'm Lucy Clark. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends. It really helps us to find more listeners. We'll be back with another episode next week in which Zoya Patel is in conversation with the novelist S.L. Lim about rage, revenge and resentment and what happens when you decide not to acquiesce to your family's expectations. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, 
source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.